Choose Linux, episode four, for March 7th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And we have to start out with a correction from last time. I said something stupid, Jason, and I apologize. You almost never do that. Oh, yeah, almost ever. <laughs> so I said that you can boot the Raspberry Pi from USB, but you do need an SD card. That is not strictly true. With the newest Pi, the 3B+, Plus, you can boot just straight from USB. And with the 3B, you can program it once, and then thereafter, you don't need the SD card. So slight correction there. I did know that stuff. But it had been nearly a year since the 3B came out, and it had sort of slipped my mind. But as soon as I put the show out, I realized, oh, hang on, I made that mistake. That would have been so good to know when I lost both of my micro SD cards. I, I scoured the entire house for like two days looking for these things. At one point, I thought the only possible thing that could have happened was the cats ate them. Yeah, so people were suggesting that you look through the litter tray. Yes, and I, I didn't do that. But you know what did happen? <laughs> so I have this older... <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really kicking myself now. I have this older uh, XPS 13, and I decided to kind of dust it off and use it for uh, Fedora. I opened the lid, Joe, and there's two micro SD cards sitting there on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> this was like two weeks uh-huh. later and <laughs> I bought, you know, I bought two more and I, I redid everything and oh my God. Oh, well, lesson learned for both of us there. Um, I have actually been booting loads of stuff from USB on the Pi um, since then and it works really well. Although I find that boot times and stuff are comparable to an SD card. That's not with a hard drive, that's just with a flash drive, although quite a fast one. So I think that it, the limiting factor is probably the, the USB speed there. So I don't think you're going to get a massive difference in performance. Although it depends, it very much depends on the workload that, that you're going for. And we'll get back to some Raspberry Pi stuff later. But you mentioned Fedora, let's start with that. The newest distro challenge is Fedora, uh, Fedora Workstation with GNOME. So um, what's your first impression of that then? My first impression is that it has been a relief since using OpenSUSE. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that I, I know that sounds bad, but I think with OpenSUSE, it was just stretching a little bit too far outside my comfort zone. You know, I, I like to be adventurous. I like to learn new things, but it was just a little bit, I was just a, in a little bit over my head. Whereas Fedora is just this rock solid just works distro, right? Right. Well, that's what they that's what they all say. That's what I would say, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I'm only being skeptical because I've only spent uh, 48 hours with it. Right. Okay. So it really is just your first impressions then. It it really is literally my first impressions. Um I installed it a couple days ago. I got through the installation. I've been, you know, kind of migrating it to be my daily driver, my workstation for the next month as I do with every challenge. So I do have a couple things I wanted to touch on. Most of them are really positive. For starters, I love Vanilla Gnome. I'd better say Gnome quickly before anyone writes in. Although both pronunciations are acceptable, I think it is technically Gnome, (laughs) but uh, yeah, just go with Gnome, it's fine. But what is it about that that you love then? It's a workflow that I'm used to. 
What, because you've been using Ubuntu and Pop! OS? Yeah, in a sense, it feels a bit like coming home to something comfortable. It's the ability to, you know, snap your uh, your cursor up into that top left corner and have all your apps show up, which a lot of a lot of distributions um, that I've used have a tendency to disable that and want you to enable it on your own. And I like that. I love that as that's what I would call a sane default. That's what I want. Just something quick and easy. Brush it up to the top left. I see all my apps. I love having the um, the dock on the left side. And I love having just that really wide open workspace. And you like that clean lack of desktop then? I guess I do. I mean, I, you know, like you said, it's uh, Ubuntu, Pop! OS, Elementary. They kind of all, they're not all GNOME, but they do all have that same philosophy when it comes to your workspace. It's get everything out of the way. It's funny that that's what I don't like about it. I like to have a nice cluttered desktop <laughs> and a very traditional <laughs> paradigm. And so uh, having tried Fedora again, while I appreciate what's good about it, it is definitely not for me, but it sounds like a, a nice vanilla GNOME installation is just what you've been looking for. And that's what people describe to me, that it just stays out of your way and lets you get on with what you need to get on with. Yeah, and I, I found that I didn't really... A lot of people out there have all of these suggestions for you know install GNOME tweaks, which I did, and you know, restore your minimize and maximize buttons and and do this and do that. The only two extensions I ever go for on GNOME are CPU power, which is the extension that System76 designed. And for for those not aware of that, it it basically allows you to choose uh, various states of CPU performance. So like performance, power save, entertainment, quiet, things like that. And it just just throttles back your CPU to um, save battery, which is which is a boon on a laptop. And the other one I go for is dash to dock. Once I do that, I'm done. I'm happy. There were a few things that, that really kind of delightfully surprised me. Uh, I, I, for, for starters, and I know this, this may be present in other distributions, but it's the first time I've noticed it. You get to your first, uh, your first boot. You get up to the desktop. You get this welcome screen. And it does a nice job of kind of explaining the the functionality and um, behavior of, of, of your desktop. You know, how to get around, how to switch workspaces, things like that. Really brief, really just clean. And then it takes you through, hey, do you want to set up your online accounts? And I know this is a GNOME thing in general, a GNOME thing in general. But this time around, I logged in with my Google account, and then I fired up Evolution, and my email was just there. I didn't have to add the account separately. It just pulled it from the online accounts portion and rolled it into the the email client, which was really cool. Like I love I love when when you know a distribution saves me the work. So have you not had the same success with other GNOME based distros there then? I'm not sure if I'd say I haven't had the same success or perhaps I haven't tried it equally across the board. It's not something I normally do right out of the gate when I hit that first boot. I know that Geary recently had an update that brings that integration as well. So I may have tried it before that was a thing. Right, okay. And yeah, I mean, wh- whatever they're doing, keep doing it because <laughs> I'd love to see that as, a, as just kind of default behavior across all distros. If, my, if you have my Google account, yes. And I've told you, add my email, integrate my calendar, then do it for the apps that are on here automatically. 
I love it. I also saw you tweeting about this software availability that you were quite surprised by. Oh, Joe. Okay, so <laughs> I have I have a bit of a Magic the Gathering arena addiction. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't want to use Windows. And so the second that I discovered I could use Lutris and Wine to run Magic the Gathering Arena and a bunch of other games, obviously. The first thing I would start doing, every distro that I touched, it's okay. Add the repository for Wine Staging, add the repository for Lutris, and install it. And since my daily driver for many, many months had been Ubuntu, the general practice was install Wine Staging, you know, add the, add the authorization keys, add the repository, install it, update your system, add a repository for Lutris, do some other commands, and then install Lutris. On Fedora, Wine Staging is already installed. And Lutris is in the software center. So it was literally one click. That doesn't really surprise me that Wine Staging is installed because Fedora is very much aimed at developers, whereas Ubuntu is more general purpose. Fedora, I think, is it's very much more for your power users and developers. I'm certainly not a developer, but uh, I'm starting to maybe consider myself a power user when it comes to certain things on Linux. Um, you know, I need I need those bleeding edge drivers, and I need Wine Staging, and I want everything to be up to date, but also stable. Is that is that something that Fedora is known for offering? Yeah, definitely. Up-to-date but stable, I think, is a perfect description of Fedora. And you know what else? Okay, I, <laughs> I have a lot of praise within, you know, within 48 hours, which is surprising. But um, have you ever used a Linux distro that had Firefox touch scrolling working out of the box? I don't believe so. I've got a little Vivo book with a touchscreen, and Chromium works perfectly out of the box. But Firefox... Usually you need to install extensions, although I haven't tried for a while, I must say. It's the first thing that I try on every distro because I'm primarily using a pair of XPS 13s. I launch Firefox and I just, you know, run my finger across the screen just to see if it's going to garishly highlight everything or if it's actually going to scroll. <laughs> and it never does until Fedora right out of the box. And I was thrilled. It's those little things that makes me think it's 2019 and this should be default behavior for any browser on any operating system. I find that GNOME's fairly touch-friendly these days. Have you tried to just use the interface with touch? Yes, and it, and it works well. I can, even, I can even play Magic Arena with touch, which is nice, <laughs> very nice. Um, but yeah, it seems, it seems really smooth. It seems a bit more touch-friendly than um, KDE. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, yeah. Can we talk about a bit of a negative with Fedora? It, and it's kind of a double-edged sword, to be fair. It's not a pure negative, and that's the installer. The installer is incredibly powerful, much more so than Ubiquity that you have with Ubuntu and derivatives. But it is also quite badly laid out and quite off-putting for the new user, I would say. This is where I'm stuck, because I found it quite easy. But I also got to a certain point, and I think I know what you're referring to. I got to this certain point where I knew that was going to really get new users hung up, and that was going to be a hurdle. And it's about the second or third screen in when you're presented with, hey, where do you want to install Fedora? And you see your, your list of drives, and there's just, you click one, and it places a check mark on it. It's like, what does that mean? 
<laughs> right? Yeah. And then um, how do I get to advanced partitioning, right? Because every other distro seems to have their own kind of intuitive language for here's how you get to advanced partitioning. Yeah. Put it this way, even after installing Fedora many times, when I installed this the other night, I had to pause my podcast that I was listening to when I got to that point and actually concentrate on what I was doing. Whereas with Ubuntu, it's just kind of next, 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 advanced, do this, do that. Maybe I've installed Ubuntu more often, but yeah, you do have to actually concentrate on what you're doing with it. Yes. And that comes with the power that it has. You can do more with it than with a simpler installer. And so I think that if you are going to try out Fedora, do be aware of that. Read everything. Take your time. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's fairly straightforward if you do that. But it's just it's not a no brainer. I should I should probably point out exactly what it is that I think will hang people up um, because it took me a second. So I selected my NVMe drive and I hit next. Okay, let's get it installed. And uh, I got a pop up warning that said, "Well, hey, there's not enough free space on this drive." Maybe you want to reclaim some space. <laughs> and, then, and then there's a button on the bottom that says reclaim space. And it turns out that is actually how you advance to the manual partitioning. But it's, it's not, um, it's just not intuitive. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think about reclaim space as let me go and partition my drives. Yeah, it's, it's not the most user-friendly is the bottom line. I think once you've done it once or twice before, then it does become easier to use. But I don't know, the, the fact that you've got buttons in different places and stuff as well, rather than with most installers, you've kind of got the, the bottom right-hand corner is your next and to progress, whereas sometimes it's in the top left, sometimes it's in the, the bottom right, and it, it just is a bit confusing and just takes more effort than I'm used to with other distros. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. You kind of form this muscle memory after after running so many installers, right? Yeah. And this one this one will throw you for a loop. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's kind of a minor bump. Once you get through that, you're faced with a very solid distro that generally just works really well. The only reason that I don't use Fedora and why I go for an Ubuntu-based system is the support length. You're guaranteed five years of security updates with regular Ubuntu and three years with the flavors. Whereas with Fedora, it is significantly less than that, and that's what puts me off. I mean, that said, it is fairly easy to upgrade Fedora installations, but it's not something that I like to do and not something I take lightly. I tend to stick on the LTSs of Ubuntu and upgrade when I absolutely have to. You're you're so much more stable than I am. I look forward to getting I look forward to finding <laughs> that stability where, you know what, I'm just gonna leave Pop OS or Fedora or Ubuntu on this thing for like five years and just let it ride. <laughs> well I don't go that far, but I'd I'd like to get at least a couple of years out of an installation. But that's something that's gonna feature in this challenge, isn't it? You're extending it a little bit longer than usual because Fedora 30 is going to come out. And you want to kind of test that upgrade. Yeah, I suppose the timing wasn't ideal. Uh, maybe we should have waited a month or two to do Fedora. But I put it up for a vote, and it was Fedora versus Manjaro versus Solus. And I think Fedora Fedora just kind of ran away with it. So we give the people what they want. And um, now what they also want is, but wait a minute, 30 is coming out in April. So yeah, I figured let's just roll it into April, upgrade to 30, and compare and contrast the differences between 29 and 30. 
you can tell that you're fairly new to Linux. <laughs> Fedora never, ever gets released on time. Oh, shoot. So, <laughs> uh, well, well not, not never, ever, but often is late because they make sure that it's uh, properly finished and ready to, to go, which I appreciate. With Ubuntu, they work so hard to make sure they hit those deadlines. Will, who I do late night Linux with, he's in charge of the Ubuntu desktop and the week or so before that he is in the office until 10 o'clock at night mm. some days and they just work super hard whereas fedora okay i'm not saying they work any less hard but not having the deadline means that they can push things off a little bit and they can push it back a few weeks sometimes so you may well find that it's not in april as you hope so you might be stuck on this for a bit longer than you thought. But then I can think of a lot worse distros to be stuck on for a few months than Fedora. Yeah, it's so far, uh, I'm really enjoying it. And hopefully within the next week or two, I can I can explore a little bit more about, you know, RPMs and flat packs and things like that. But before we put this segment to bed, I have to say one thing. It's kind of it's kind of a personal, like special landmark moment for me. I edited a bash script. <laughs> I never thought wow. I never thought I would be saying that. We don't need to get too far into the weeds, but there was a a script out there that a Fedora admin had developed. It just adds the RPM fusion repositories and a bunch of software and gnome tweaks and little customizations here and there. But it was so useful to me and so interesting that I actually dug into the code and kind of made sense of it. And started adapting it for my own needs so that if I want to throw Fedora on another machine or use them simultaneously, I can just throw that script on a USB drive and run it after I've installed the system. And it's uh, it was it was it was really exciting actually. Like I didn't I didn't ever think that I would be some kind of you know command line warrior, and I'm I'm sure I'm not yet, but uh, I'm starting to embrace it just a little bit. You did get a bit of pushback on Twitter, though, didn't you, from people saying that it's not a good idea to encourage people to be running scripts. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that some of those concerns are warranted. The overwhelming opinion is, look, don't run a random script as root, which makes sense. Maybe don't run a random script at all, but in this case, this was from a Fedora admin. It's very clean, well-documented code, it even says in bold print, do not run this as root. And it even says if you if you run this with a preceding pseudo command, it'll just kick you out. So it, a lot of a lot of thought went into making this not a harmful thing that can take over your system or mess things up. And um, but I, yeah, I did get a lot of flack about that. And I suppose I'm still uh, ignorant <laughs> and a little bit carefree in a way. You know, I'm not. I'm not um, experienced enough to understand what's out there that will harm you and what will not. So I initially I was a little rattled by that, but I actually kind of appreciate the community coming out and saying, look, just be careful. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to be running random scripts. In this case, the script is from a reputable source, but it's hard to know, especially for a new user, what's a reputable source and what isn't. And if you just stick to the tools within the distro, you're very unlikely to go wrong. Whereas when you start just putting random stuff into your terminal, that 
can really cause problems. And even if it's not runner's route, you can potentially delete all your documents and all your photos or whatever. And so there can be problems with that. So I can see why you got, you got a lot of pushback on that. And I would generally discourage people from copy-pasting things and running scripts unless they know exactly what they're doing. And that's why I actually wrote about this uh, the script because it was such a kind of a breakthrough moment for me. And I thought it would be useful to a lot of people doing the challenge. And one of the things I've been trying to do is if I include anything in that article that's going to be something you run in the terminal, I try my best to explain exactly what each part is doing so that people aren't just blindly, you know, copying and pasting into their system with no idea what's going to happen. Well, I think that we might well return to this Fedora topic briefly in future episodes, but let's talk about more of your Raspberry Pi adventures. And really the things that you've been doing could be done on pretty much any computer, but it's just very easy to do them on the Raspberry Pi. On the first episode, we talked about you trying to set up network storage with Open Media Vault, and now you've been playing with Nextcloud on the Raspberry Pi, and it sounds like it's gone very well for you. It has. It was night and day. <laughs> was it just a case of image the card, turn the Pi on, connect to it over the network, and get going? Yeah, that's exactly it. Image the card, plug in your Pi, and boot up. Now, what I did with Nextcloud Pi, since that's a standalone, you know, self-contained OS, is I did hook up my Pi to a monitor with a keyboard, just briefly, just long enough to get the Pi's IP address. That's all you need. That's really all you need. And I know there's, you could, if you're on your home network, I'm sure there's commands that you can execute to kind of scan your your connected network devices and find that IP address. But for simplicity's sake, I just wanted to see that IP address displayed. That's all I needed. And then you plug in that IP address into a browser and you go into a uh, basically a wizard that gives you a password for your initial login and asks you, hey, do you want to store things and back things up with a USB drive? Do you want to have it auto-mounted? What is your preferred password, things like that. It's, you know, it's a GUI. It's very user-friendly. I think that's what struck me was that this was incredibly easy to use without a manual. I probably knocked this out in two or three hours. Within two or three hours, I had my um, my main Hades Canyon box backing up to NextCloud Pi. I had next the NextCloud app installed on my phone, my um, Android phone, and I was auto-backing up any new photos that were taken, and I was streaming music off of it, and it was just easy. It is very easy, isn't it? As for finding the IP of the Pi, most people will tell you to use Nmap, but I'm going to give you a little tip. NetScan is an app for Android. It's not open source but it's in the Play Store, and that will basically do the same job as Nmap. Oh, NetScan. NetScan, yeah. But yeah, it is very easy to set up, isn't it? And you can do this on an old laptop or whatever. The easiest way to set up NextCloud is with the Snap, which is just Snap install NextCloud, and that installs the server for you, configures the database, does everything, makes it super, super easy. And th- that's what I did. Not the client, but the actual server is a snap. Yes. Oh my gosh. 
I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So if you want something more powerful than the Pi with better network or whatever, say you've got an old laptop or desktop that's got gigabit Ethernet, then yeah, just install a distro. I mean, I did this on Fedora. You can obviously do it on Ubuntu. And just snap install Nextcloud and boom, it's just all set up perfectly for you. See, that's that's a really useful tip to me because I love the idea of this affordable device that can just be sitting in a corner for a single purpose. But I feel like at least with the, uh, the Model 3B Plus, it's probably got enough horsepower to be able to run a Nextcloud server and to be able to have something like Laka installed for your retro gaming fixes and be able to run stuff like Kodi. So maybe I don't need to be devoting one single application to each Pi. I mean, do you think that a single Pi can handle all of that on a standard distro? It really depends on how hard you're pushing each thing. I've never tried, to be honest, but I think you should be able to. If if there's only you using Nextcloud, and if you're not hammering it while you're also trying to watch videos and while you're trying to play games, I think that if you don't make it multitask too much, then you should be okay because Nextcloud is not particularly heavy. So, yeah, I think you should be all right. Um, it's It's certainly worth a try. Something I'd like to look into more deeply with Nextcloud is how to maybe limit your bandwidth uh, because that initial backup, man, it was like, you know, a hundred gigabytes worth of stuff. And it's just <laughs> my wife, I can't watch Netflix. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> so just the, uh, you know, the pipes were very clogged during, so it'd be interesting yeah. to see if there's some, some uh, tips and tweaks that, that you can use to throttle back your bandwidth while it's doing that initial backup. Oh, well, I've got a tip for you there. Wonder Shaper which you can install and you can set it on the machine itself how much upload and download you want to use. Wonder Shaper, that's my tip there. Man, two good tips for me personally this this week. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's something that I've been playing with and enjoying. And I'm even looking at maybe uh, doling out a couple extra user accounts, you know, just to see how that works. Like uh, if my wife wants to back up her photos there, something like that. It's just really useful and it seems stable for the most part. I had a a few hiccups where my Android phone wasn't able to sync the photos to the Pi, but it ended up resolving itself. Uh, That's not good if you're having hiccups because with a backup solution, you need it to work 100% because if it's not working 100%, then it's not working as far as I'm concerned. You need to be able to rely on it and something like Dropbox, okay, it's proprietary, but you know it's going to work. Um, and, you know, it's it's completely different because we're talking about something that's self-hosted here and that you're in full control of. But if it can't do the same job as these proprietary centralized services, then it's not that much use, is it? That's a fair argument. But then again, what price can you put on freedom and control? And that's something that you now have. You're right. But what price can you put on peace of mind? Yeah. That's true. Right? And I I guess that's the other side of the argument, which is kind of the argument you're making is, if you're not completely convinced that it's 100% reliable, are you you comfortable having all of your data backing up there? And to to be clear, this is not not my backup solution. This is a, a project. Something I'm doing to see if it works and that will hopefully give me an idea for something a bit broader and, and more comprehensive down the road. Like, 
I would love to have a NextCloud instance on um, my DigitalOcean account, for example. That, I think, would be a much more reliable, stable solution than having it on my entertainment center with an external hard drive. <laughs> yeah, because, again, um, as we talked about early on, I think in episode one, it's not a great idea to start opening your network up to the internet unless you know exactly what you're doing. Whereas something like DigitalOcean, if you just chuck it on a droplet there, then that's kind of designed to be out in the internet and it's not letting people into your network. And if something goes wrong and that machine gets compromised, okay, any data that you put on it is compromised, but at least it's not everything on your network. But again, I would say you've got to be careful with this stuff. And I've talked about how easy it is to get NextCloud running with the Snap, and it is trivial, and it's pretty easy with this Raspberry Pi image, right? But it depends why you want to do this. If you want something that is super easy and quick to set up and you want to just get going with it, then that's great. But if you want to learn about how it all works, then using the Pi image or the Snap is not the way to go. The way to go is install Apache or Nginx or whatever, configure your database, make sure you've got all the PHP modules that you need to work, install it manually, and actually learn how it works. So it, it really really depends w- which angle you're coming in at. And I would say that if you do want to learn, then the Snap is a terrible way to do it because you're not actually learning anything. You just, it's too easy. I think that where the Snap and the, um, the Raspberry Pi image come in really handy is for someone who knows how to do it and has done it before, but just wants a quick, simple way to do that. But I don't know. It depends. What what do you want to do? Do you want to learn or do you want to just do? And it, that's a decision that only you can make. Well, you know, the more I dabble with DigitalOcean and, you know, setting up things like Ghost there for my website, that may be something I'd like to explore just to to really learn the the inner workings of of how this is all coming together. So maybe it'd be fun to revisit this segment a few months from now, but from the other side, like, hey, I did Nextcloud, but I did it all by hand. Yeah, I think you should definitely give that a go at some point because even someone with rudimentary Linux knowledge should be able to manage it because there's so much good documentation out there. And it's just a case of reading that and following the steps and you will actually learn quite a lot from it. Right, well, we better get out of here. But if you want to listen to all the future episodes of Choose Linux, then go to choose slash subscribe and you can find all the various podcast players and everything there in the RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, choose linux.show slash contact. And if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, I am at killyourfm. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. See you later. Bye.